0: Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast, even when there's no Old Testament in the lectionary. I'm (laughs) Tim McNinch.
1: And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we're continuing our series looking at the Old Testament resonances in the New Testament lessons, which this week is John 15, 1 through 8, the gospel reading for May 2nd. And spoiler alert, it continues directly into next week. So if you're going to preach on John 15 this week, you might as well listen to next week's episode as well and get a two-for-one out of it. Yeah. But for this week, Tim has prepped this text. So so what would you find here, friend?
0: Yeah. Well, in John, uh, this speech that we're looking at from Jesus is part of the conversation among Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper, a Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And as you said, the section runs right through uh, verse 17, and uh, you're going to tackle the second part of that next week. But for this week, we'll stick with uh, the lectionary, what the lectionary gives us, which is the first eight verses. So um, John 15, 1, is one of those I am statements in John Mm -hmm. where Jesus takes a version of the divine name and applies it to himself. Mm -hmm. This is a way that the author of John lifts up Jesus' divinity. In this case, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. And he goes on to unwrap an extended metaphor where he's the vine, the disciples are branches, and God is the gardener who prunes fruit-bearing branches and disposes of the dead ones. So as we think about the Old Testament influences on this text, we can start with the low-hanging fruit, <laughs> vineyard imagery in the Old Testament.
1: That's really punny on a lot of levels, Tim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Puns are a high form of humor. Uh huh. <laughs> anyway, there are several places in the Old Testament where the people of Israel are compared to a vine or a vineyard and God is the gardener. In these texts, the fruitfulness of the people is connected to divine discipline. Uh, here's a couple examples. So Isaiah chapter five, first several verses here. Uh, let me read a little bit. Let me sing from my loved one a song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away at stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it and dug out a wine vat. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now, you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And we get into all sorts of Isaiahic <laughs> doom and gloom here. Um,
1: we, we do, but can I just say that listening to you read judgment text is a little like trying to listen to Mr. Rogers trying to read judgment text. <laughs> like, I expected it to grow good grapes and it grew rotten ones. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you think I have a, a naturally positive tone. So yeah, that's, that's Ra- nice.
1: Wrath does not sit easily on you, Tim.
0: <laughs> in any case, that's an example of a, a vineyard as a metaphor for Israel with mm. the expectation that it will bear good fruit, in this case, justice. Mm. Um, one more quick example. This is from Ezekiel 15, uh, 1 through 6. The Lord's word came to me, Human one, how is the vine's wood better than the wood of all the trees in the forest? Can you make anything useful from its wood? Can you make a peg from it and hang objects on it? If not, can it be used as firewood? Fire would consume its two ends, but its middle part would only get charred. Ah, Is it useful for anything? Look, even when it was whole, it was worthless. Now that the fire's consumed it and it's charred, it's even more useless. Therefore, the Lord God proclaims of all the trees in the forest, I've decreed that the vines wood is destined to be consumed by fire. Mm. So also have I decreed for those who live in Jerusalem, Mm. another doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in this case, the prophets reflecting on the uselessness of vine branches for building anything, Mm -hmm. it's only good for firewood. Jesus picks that image up in John 15 when he talks about branches that don't bear fruit being tossed into the fire. So perhaps Jesus, or the author of John, has these passages or similar Old Testament texts in mind during this Passover conversation. Or it could be that using vines and vineyards as metaphors simply comes from their common familiarity within their own agricultural milieu. Mm. So, so far, so good?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So the question is kind of, was this image so common that it was just used to talk about a lot of different things, uh, kind of the way we use sports metaphors to talk about all sorts of different things? Or was Jesus drawing from these uh, specific Old Testament texts that talk about vineyards in relationship uh, between God and the people? I'm struck too, and maybe you'll talk about this, but I'm struck too by how these are both uh, as you said, judgment or or more negative images in the Old Testament. And here, however, we have um Jesus, you know, talking about himself as vine, a very positive image, which mm-hmm. is fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. The metaphor of a vine and its branches has sort of both a positive or a negative connotation. And mm-hmm. Jesus makes use of both of those in this in this Passover speech. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure whether Jesus or the author of John is referring specifically to these texts, but that's, that's low-hanging fruit. And I actually <laughs> think that there's a deeper Old Testament resonance in this section, one that actually gets at the shape of the whole passage.
1: Oh, okay. I'm intrigued.
0: So, Jesus has been teaching, instructing his followers through the gospel— And now at the end, he says, in effect, if you keep all this, you will bear fruit, that is, prosper. Mm. And if you don't follow all of this, you'll be thrown out and burned up. So, Rachel, form critically speaking, what's going on here?
1: Yeah, form critically. This sounds like when you are establishing a covenant with someone, at the very end of that establishment of the covenant, there's a series of blessings and curses, are there not?
0: Exactly. Ah. I think the author of John is shaping this farewell discourse of Jesus as the conclusion to a covenant, Mm. one patterned after the Sinai covenant in the Torah. And just like that ancient covenant ended with blessings and curses, as you say, just like most ancient Near Eastern covenants ended with blessings and curses, Jesus introduces that same motif here in John 15.
1: That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. And in fact, John often compares Jesus to Moses. Going right back to the first chapter, John 1, 16 to 17, where he says, From his, Jesus' fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. As the Torah was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ.
1: You know what, that's really fascinating, Tim, because I have, so that first part of that verse, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I could have told you that the second half of that sentence had anything to do with Moses. I just totally missed that.
0: Yeah, Moses's grace, and then Jesus's grace upon yeah. grace. Yeah. So here we are at a Passover meal where Jesus and the disciples have celebrated God's deliverance of Israel through the leadership of Moses, and now Jesus is framing his teaching as a kind of recapitulation of the Sinai Covenant. Hmm. Now, in particular, I hear echoes of Deuteronomy 30 going on in John 15. So check this out, Rachel. There are, um, here's, a, here's a few excerpts from Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 through 20. And um, this is part of the blessings and curses uh, section at the end of the covenant presentation in Deuteronomy. So verse six says, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's a blessing mm-hmm. part. Verse nine picks up the Lord, your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand in the fruit of your body. Mm-hmm. And in the fruit of your cattle and in the Mm. fruit of your ground, for Mm. the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord, your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law. If you turn to the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then the section ends. This is the famous part, right? In verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, cleaving to him. For that means life to you and length of days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. (sighs) So in Deuteronomy, Moses frames the blessings of covenant obedience in terms of fruitfulness in the land.
1: Oh, this is fascinating. (laughs) This is really good.
0: Well, it gets even better. Okay. In Jesus's metaphor, he says that God removes and disposes of the fruitless branches of the vine, Mm -hmm. but God prunes the ones that bear fruit. Okay. In 15.3, Jesus says to his disciples, you have already been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you. The NRSV there says cleansed, but it's actually the exact same word as in the previous verse about pruning. The Greek word is katharos. Mm. We get our own English word catharsis from that same root, a a sort of cleansing experience. Mm. But in an agricultural context, that's the, the normal word for pruning So remember that word, Mm katarros. Now, in case those of you out there don't do much gardening, pruning is a practice of seasonally trimming back some of the new growth on a plant so that instead of putting energy into those new stems, the plant will invest that energy into producing more fruit. So Jesus says that his followers have been pruned to bear more fruit by the words that he's spoken to them. Mm -hmm. Now... Back in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses says that if Israel obeys the words that he has spoken to them, they will be fruitful. He says in verse six, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live and further later on and bear fruit. Mm -hmm. That concept of circumcising the heart pops up a few times in the Old Testament, especially Mm -hmm. in the prophets. And in the Hebrew of Deuteronomy, it's the normal word for circumcision, mol. But, and here's where we get to peek into the head of the author of John. In John's Bible, the Septuagint, the translator opts not to use the usual Greek word for circumcision, peritemno. Instead, the Septuagint uses a rare synonym for circumcision. Can you guess what it is?
1: No, I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Pericatarizo. The Lord will prune your heart. You you hear that root catharros and pericatarizo? Yeah. (laughs) So this is pretty cool. My guess is that the translator did this because of all that fruitfulness imagery in the text and wanted to push the wordplay a bit with with a form of the word circumcision that ties it. To a sort of reproductive pruning of the flesh. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's a pruning of the heart, that is, the people's will and their determination to follow the way of God. Mm-hmm. Their heart has been pruned for fruitfulness by the giving of these commandments. If they keep them, they'll bear fruit, but if they ignore them, they'll be cast out and burned. Mm-hmm. In addition to this being fascinating intertextuality, um, what all this does is highlight the covenantal quality of what Jesus is doing here at the end of John. Jesus isn't starting a new religion. He's shaping the covenantal identity of a people, the people of God, in continuity with the people of Israel.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating, too, that he, that, I mean we talk about covenant and um typically if we're in a new testament context we talk we we think of that in terms of like the lord's supper mm-hmm. uh you know the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins but um john of course does not have the words of institution in it it's almost like that that covenant piece is it, it like like the author takes that covenant piece and overlays it on this part of the text because There's so much import to the author in this idea of loving one another through Jesus's commandments. Mm -hmm. It's it's taking love and turning it into a covenant in a way that the other gospels don't really,
0: which is fascinating. But in a way that the love of God and the love love for each other is a part of Old Testament covenant language.
1: Yeah. Love is central
0: to the covenant. Yes.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. So, so how would you how would you preach this? What do you have suggestions for preaching?
0: Aha, uh-huh. yes. Um, first of all, a potential preaching pitfall. I think that every time I've heard this text preached, it's been a sermon about how God allows us to experience pain as a kind of pruning uh-huh. and that pain produces growth. Sure. And, you know, perhaps that's true, and that's one way to read this metaphor of pruning. But I actually don't think that's the main thing going on here. Mm. The point that Jesus is making is not that he or that God is causing disciples pain in order to lead to growth. Yeah. The pruning metaphor here is not so much about pain as it's about the way that pruning is a form of training, of cultivating mm. a plant. Mm. And in John 15, it's tied explicitly to the words that Jesus has given them, his teaching, his commandments. Hmm. these instructions have already pruned them, have prepped them and trained them to bear more and more fruit. It's not an Hmm. image of pain. It's an image of, of a gardener's care and cultivation of education and training so that they'll be fruitful as God's representatives in the world. Hmm. So if you out there are going to preach this text, consider Playing out the metaphor of pruning as a metaphor about what the words of Jesus do in us, how they shape us and train us to bear the fruit of justice in the world around us.
1: Well, great work, Tim. That was just really fun to listen to, to be quite honest. So I think you've got a great idea here and I hope people take you up on it. Folks, if you enjoyed this today and found it helpful, we do so hope that you will share it with one other friend or even an enemy, maybe a frenemy, maybe somebody (laughs) you sort of like. Whoever it is, send them our way or send us to them. We would love to to get the word out a little bit more about uh, having the the whole Bible preached and taught in in Jesus' church. To that end, you can check us out on firstreadingpodcast.com or find us on Facebook. And uh, we hope to see you back here next week as we continue with John 15, verses 9 through 17. Until then, I'm Rachel Wren.
0: And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and happy preaching.